Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist for Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. Thanks for joining us here at our show tonight. We'll be listening and continuing listening to William Steele, The Underground Railroad. And I want to take this time now to introduce the force behind this show, and that's Miss Leslie Gist. Hi, Leslie. Hi, Preston. Just me and you tonight. Um, are you ready to talk about the uh, slave tags and uh, six-week reading William Steele's book? Okay. Yeah, you uh, you mentioned the employment tag, right? Mm-hmm. Tag for hire. Yeah, the enslavement for hire tag. And for our listeners, this was a tag that some individuals were required to wear to show that they were uh, free enough to move about to hire out their services. And the tag included the city, the number, one's occupation, and the year. We'll be hearing about that tonight. I'm just what curious, uh, Preston, what did you think about that tag? Were you familiar with this type of slavery? This is the first I've heard of it. I'm not mm-hmm. sure what to think. Um, what will I have been exposed to? I think the gentleman um, who was talked to about that, was his name James Hamilton Christian? Yes, Mr. Christian. Yeah, that he was um, um, parented by his slave master and that he probably had an edge um, due to his color and the fact of who his parent was. So I instantly uh, started to think, I wonder if most of those people who carried these tags were indeed the offspring of the slave master. Uh, yeah. Don't have any specific information on that, uh, but that thought well, did arrive. Well, it definitely gives us a different angle on uh, the house Negro and the benefits. Yeah. Um, you know, I just thought it was an expression, but to see this in black and white coming out of William Steele's book, it just um, brought a whole different light on the, you know, the struggles we have today with the different complexions of African Americans and the risk. And uh, it really ex- but it explains. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering if it was just house Negroes that had those tags. Because I'm thinking 
um, you know, if one had a skill such as blacksmithing, mm-hmm. it would have been a very valuable skill to other slaveholders in the community. And if they did not have a blacksmith on their plantation, then they would be seeking those services. I'm also thinking of uh, masonry. Well, when I say house Negro, I'm talking about anyone who's not in the field. Okay, all right. So your dog includes those who might have had skills. Right, anyone who's not in the field and has some sort of skill. um, And Peter just, you know, he definitely was one that was out for hire. That's how he was able to purchase his freedom. And um, so it was more common than we know. And we've been taught um, this practice of hiring and leasing out enslaved blacks to other plantations. And I think Peter was in a different state, you know, when um, he was leased out. He was allowed to remain in Kentucky when the rest of the uh, slaves had to be um, sold, or not sold, but bequeathed to other relatives. Um yeah. Any other points I, you have? Mm-hmm. Well, just one other. Uh, thanks for mentioning that, and our listeners may be interested to know that once hired out, the slave was able to keep a percentage of the money that he made, um, which enabled him to perhaps uh, save that money, buy his freedom, buy his wife's freedom, children's freedom, and so on. Mm-hmm. And interesting enough, um, just coincidentally, I also posted a picture of a different gentleman named Mr. Lott. Did you see it on my Facebook page? And listeners, you can also friend Preston and I on Facebook. I'm on Facebook under Leslie, L-E-S-L-E-Y, Gist, and Preston is under P-R-E-S-T-O-N, Washington. Um, I posted a picture of Mr. Lott. Did you see him? I did see that. On my page? Okay, William A. Christian. Guess who he was enslaved to? No, tell me. The same Christian family that that we're going to be listening to, Mr. Christian. They come from the same plantation, same owner. All right. Almost 50 years apart. How many years apart? About 50. Um, Mr. Lott was born... In eight in 1780 and died in 1828. And Mr. Christian, who we're going to listen to today, I think he died in the late 1800s. I see. And so, Mr. Um, a missionary to Africa. Right. Later on. Right. So when I saw the two names that they were both enslaved to the Christian family in Virginia, I said, wow. Well, so um, before we go on to the, the clip, let's talk about the holiday, Juneteenth. Because uh, you give the audience some some, um, some information about Juneteenth. Well, June 19th uh, is the date that the slaves got the message in Texas that they were finally free. Um you know, the dates varied across the United States. In Indian Territory, the date was August 5th. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure it was here in Missouri. 
Uh-huh. Uh, but there were celebrations across the country. There was also the unveiling of a statue there in Washington, D.C. of Frederick Douglass. Um, was certainly overdue uh, in terms of having a statue there uh, in Washington, D.C. and be recognized for his work as an abolitionist back in the day. And there were celebrations all across the United States. Uh, here in Missouri, um, I had the honor of presenting in uh, Higginsville, Missouri, uh, relative to genealogy at their uh, two-day festival, uh, Juneteenth Festival. Uh, what was going on in your area? Oh, in New Jersey, uh, they had a big um, festival in uh, Teaneck, the Teaneck, New Jersey area, a place called Overpeck Park. Um, very large park, county park. They they did something there, and they've been doing something every year. In Patterson, where I was raised, the town founded on Alexander Hamilton. They had their parade last weekend, and there's a lot of festivities going on in New York City. They had a parade uh, last last weekend. My dear friend Jacob Morris, the Harlem Historical Director, he was. Um, Involved with the VIP breakfast, and so um, it was really it was a, it was a lot going on. But I was really excited about the Frederick Douglass statue in uh, Washington D.C. That makes four African American statues at, on Capitol Hill, including Martin Luther King's um, monument, which I'm really cool about. It was, it was really exciting. Okay. Uh, does mm-hmm. Fannie Lou, Lou Hamer have one there? And uh, on Capitol Hill? Yeah, or somewhere in Washington, D.C. I'm not sure. Just curious. I I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, But... um. Well, it was something I'm sorry. I had a little distraction in the background. I apologize. But um, there's a lot going on. We have the 4th of July coming up. Um, I know a lot of people like to recite uh, Frederick Douglass' speech about why he doesn't celebrate the 4th of July. But um, I think black people should celebrate the 4th of July just like we celebrate Juneteenth and all other black, um, every other holiday, because black people have some serious influence in making America what it is today. We may not be where we want to be, but we made a lot of progress. And with all the suffering we had um, endured, we need to try to find our history and find a reason to celebrate while also honoring um, our, our people who fought for us to get this far and I don't think we credit them enough um, for their accomplishments. What say you? Well, there were uh, black folks who participated in the Revolutionary War. Um, mm-hmm. I think there are a number of people early in our history who followed um, Frederick's advice and did not celebrate July the 4th. Um, mm-hmm. My mother recalls, she's 92 years old, and she recalls they never celebrated on July 4th in uh, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. state of Oklahoma, although the state did, mm-hmm. but they did. But I think you're right. I think uh, 
you know, race is a social construct. Uh And as I mentioned, black folks participated in the Revolutionary War. They participated in the Civil War. And had it not been for black folks fighting in the Civil War, um, freedom might not have come about. Uh Freedom came about because black folks were involved in that war. Uh, All right. And we have to to talk about Christmas Alex when we talk about the 4th of July. Exactly. First person to fall. uh, All right. In that revolution, Boston mm -hmm. was a black man. So our Mm -hmm. history, as you've indicated, is intertwined with the history of the United States. I mean... Mm-hmm. You can't talk about the history of the United States and not talk about black folks. Um, right. Although we know that it has not been properly handled, uh, mm-hmm. not until you came along anyway, uh, in our school system, oh. uh, whatever level in our school systems and in our history books that were used in those systems omitted a lot of the history. Right. And, uh, it's efforts like yours that really uh, bring about some correction on that right. history. And I think I'm, what I'm trying to do is to show that we can acknowledge the traditional holidays at the same time uh, celebrate our people. You know, if we celebrate the 4th of July, it doesn't mean we celebrate everything and every aspect of the 4th of July, but we use it as an excuse or an opportunity to to highlight where we stood and how we uh, made contributions. So um, before we go to the clip, I just wanted to mention one more thing about Galveston, Texas. Uh, Do you know why they chose, why that place was one of the last places that um, the blacks had to be rescued? I I say rescued. And so they had to go out. Uh, slavery was practiced there, like it, and as far as I know, like it was nowhere else. I mean, uh, Texas refused to uh, acknowledge that the slaves had been freed. They held the information back. Um, they were deep, and that is deep in the country. And the okay. Union soldiers weren't able to get up that far or that deep into Texas uh, to bring the word. And uh, what I've... Uh, what little I know about it is that the owners uh, would just, you know, if if they hadn't found out when they did, they'd probably still be in slavery down there. Right. I was. I read somewhere that they uh, used Texas as a bank uh, to bank their their slaves. That um, uh, when they knew the war was about to break out, that they literally hid them in Texas. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, and if you through the Freedmen Bureau records. The most outrages during the Civil War and shortly after occurred in Texas than any other southern state in the Union. Uh, well, the Texas outrages has a, against yeah, black I didn't mean it. Right. Well, you know, Texas has a, a serious history of uh, racism being that they refused to um, abide by the laws of Mexico and um, and continue trying to expand slavery into another country, which caused the war. And I'm so happy to say that the Mexicans let us uh, escape there 
and they were a safe harbor and safe haven for us. Uh, so we could go on and on tonight about why we have so many reasons to celebrate um, our liberty all over the world. Um, we fought, we've been fighting for freedom um, in different parts of the country since we, since the moment we've uh, been enslaved. And I think um, we need to teach our children this story and and also make friends with the people who helped our families and our people uh, gain liberty all over the world. So let's move on to this clip um, from William Steele's book. And while I'm searching for it, just give the people a little bit of information about who William Steele is. Well, William Still was a, a leading abolitionist in the um, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania area. And uh, he was a major, major conductor on the Underground Railroad. And everything revolved around his house, his business. Uh, I believe he was an attorney. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not sure about yeah, that. Yeah, I've been trying, I've been... Reading him, he was an attorney in uh, Congress. Um, I saw his name, his signature with EFQ on it a few times. Yeah, document. And very instrumental in the uh, in the movement. Um, okay. Those on the underground railroad sought him out. Uh, they were able to use his home, his house. He had all the connections. Uh, there in that area of Philadelphia and all the way to Canada. Right. Uh, right. Well, he had internet, right. He had international connections, so he has friends everywhere. And uh, luckily so, for us, he mm-hmm. was the book uh, to pass those stories on. Right. Uh, An 800-page book with hundreds of stories of different people that escaped through the Underground Railroad, small narratives. Right. So if you're a genealogist like Preston and you want to find out if your family is connected to the Underground Railroad, the first book you should purchase and look up is this book um, by William Steele, which is entitled or titled The Underground Railroad. So I found the clip. This one is what we're going to start off with. Mr. Christian, who was enslaved by um, a former president, And let's listen to this story. Thanks for joining us. Section 15 of the Underground Railroad, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. The Underground Railroad, Part 1, by William Still. Section 15. Ex-President Tyler's Household Loses an Aristocratic Article Edward Morgan, Henry Johnson, James and Stephen Butler Ex-President Tyler's Household Loses an Aristocratic Article James Hamilton Christian is a remarkable specimen of the well-fed, etc. In talking with him relative to his life as a slave, he said very promptly, I have always been treated well. If I only have half as good times in the North as I have had in the South, I shall be perfectly satisfied. Any time I desired spending money, five or ten dollars were no object. At times James had borrowed of his master, 
one, two, and three hundred dollars to loan out to some of his friends. With regard to apparel and jewelry, he had worn the best as an everyday adornment. With regard to food also, he had fared as well as heart could wish, with abundance of leisure time at his command. His deportment was certainly very refined and gentlemanly. About fifty percent of Anglo-Saxon blood was visible in his features and his hair, which gave him no inconsiderable claim to sympathy and care. He had been to William and Mary's College in his younger days to wait on young master James B.C., where, through the kindness of some of the students, he had picked up a trifling amount of book-learning. To be brief, this man was born the slave of old Major Christian, on the Glen Plantation, Charles City County, Virginia. The Christians were wealthy and owned many slaves, and belonged in reality to the FFVs. On the death of the old Major, James fell into the hands of his son, Judge Christian, who was the executor to his father's estate. Subsequently, he fell into the hands of one of the judge's sisters, Mrs. John Tyler, wife of ex-president Tyler, and then he became a member of the president's domestic household, was at the White House under the president from 1841 to 1845. Though but very young at that time, James was only fit for training in the arts, science, and mystery of waiting, in which profession much pains were taken to qualify him completely for his calling. After a lapse of time, his mistress died. According to her request, after this event, James and his old mother were handed over to her nephew, William H. Christian Esquire, a merchant of Richmond. From this gentleman, James had the folly to flee. Passing hurriedly over interesting details received from him respecting his remarkable history, two or three more incidents too good to omit must suffice. "'How did you like Mr. Tyler?' said an inquisitive member of the Vigilance Committee. "'I didn't like Mr. Tyler much,' was the reply. "'Why?' again inquired the member of the committee. "'Because Mr. Tyler was a poor man. I never did like poor people. I didn't like his marrying into our family, who were considered very far Tyler's superiors. On the plantation, he said, Tyler was a very cross man and treated the servants very cruelly.' but the house servants were treated much better, owing to their having belonged to his wife, who protected them from persecution, as they had been favorite servants in her father's family. James estimated that Tyler got about $35,000 and 29 slaves, young and old, by his wife. What prompted James to leave such pleasant quarters? It was this. He had become enamored of a young and respectable free girl in Richmond, with whom he could not be united in marriage solely because he was a slave and did not own himself. The frequent sad separations of such married couples where one or the other was a slave could not be overlooked. Consequently, the poor fellow concluded that he would stand a better chance of gaining his object in Canada than by remaining in Virginia. So he began to feel that he might himself be sold some day, and thus the resolution came home to him very forcibly to make tracks for Canada. In speaking of the good treatment he had always met with, a member of the committee remarked, You must be akin to someone of your master's family. To which he replied, I am Christian's son. Unquestionably, this passenger was one of that happy class so commonly referred to by apologists for the patriarchal institution. 
the committee feeling a deep interest in his story and desiring great success to him in his underground efforts to get rid of slavery and at the same time possess himself of his affianced made him heartily welcome feeling assured that the struggles and hardships he had submitted to in escaping as well as the luxuries he was leaving behind were nothing to be compared with the blessings of liberty and a free wife in canada edward morgan henry johnson james and stephen butler two thousand dollars reward the above reward will be paid for the apprehension of two blacks who escaped on sunday last it is supposed they have made their way to pennsylvania five hundred dollars will be paid for the apprehension of either so that we can get them again the oldest is named edward morgan about five feet six or seven inches heavily made is a dark black has rather a down look when spoken to and is about twenty-one years of age henry johnson is a colored negro about five feet seven or eight inches heavily made aged nineteen years has a pleasant countenance and has a mark on his neck below the ear stephen butler is a dark-complexioned negro about five feet seven inches has a pleasant countenance with a scar above his eye plays on the violin about twenty-two years old jim butler is a dark-complexioned negro five feet eight or nine inches is rather sullen when spoken to face rough aged about twenty-one years the clothing not recollected they had black frock coats and slouch hats with them any information of them address elizabeth brown sandy hook post office or of thomas johnson abingdon post office hartford county maryland elizabeth brown thomas johnson from the underground railroad records the following memorandum is made which if not too late may afford some light to elizabeth brown and thomas johnson if they have not already gone the way of the lost cause june fourth eighteen fifty seven edward is a hardy and firm-looking young man of twenty-four years of age chestnut color medium size and likely would doubtless bring fourteen hundred dollars in the market he had been held as the property of the widow betsy brown who resided near mill green post office in hartford county maryland she was a very bad woman would go to church every sunday come home and go to fighting amongst the colored people was never satisfied she treated my mother very hard said ed would beat her with a walking stick etc she was an old woman and belonged to the catholic church over her slaves she kept an overseer who was a very wicked man very bad on colored people his name was bill eddy elizabeth brown owned twelve head henry is of a brown skin a good-looking young man only nineteen years of age whose prepossessing appearance would insure a high price for him in the market perhaps seventeen hundred dollars with edward he testifies to the meanness of mrs betsy brown as well as to his own longing desire for freedom being a fellow servant with edward henry was a party to the plan to escape in slavery he left his mother and three sisters owned by the old woman from whom he escaped james is about twenty-one years of age full black and medium size as he had been worked hard on poor fare he concluded to leave in company with his brother and two cousins leaving his parents in slavery 
owned by the widow Pyle, who was also the owner of himself. She was upwards of eighty, very passionate and ill-natured, although a member of the Presbyterian Church. James may be worth fourteen hundred dollars. Stephen is a brother of James's, and is about the same size, though a year older. His experience differed in no material respect from his brother's, was owned by the same woman, whom he hated for her bad treatment of him, would bring fourteen hundred dollars, perhaps. In substance, and to a considerable extent in the exact words, these facts are given as they came from the lips of the passengers, who, though having been kept in ignorance and bondage, seemed to have their eyes fully open to the wrongs that had been heaped upon them, and were singularly determined to reach free soil at all hazards. The committee willingly attended to their financial and other wants, and cheered them on with encouraging advice. They were indebted to the Baltimore Sun for the advertisement information, and here it may be further added that the Sun was quite famous for this kind of underground railroad literature, and on that account alone the committee subscribed for it daily, and never failed to scan closely certain columns illustrated with a black man running away with a bundle on his back. Many of these popular illustrations and advertisements were preserved, Many others were sent away to friends at a distance who took a special interest in the Underground Railroad matters. Friends and stockholders in England used to take a great interest in seeing how the fine arts in these particulars were encouraged in the South, the land of chivalry. End of section 15. Recording by Maria Casper. Well, wow, quite a bit of oh, information. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. Quite a bit of information. Uh, what are you... Yes, it is. Uh, what are you? Okay. Well, I what struck me, um, which I'm sure it probably struck our listeners as well, but maybe not much of a surprise, is that mm-hmm. the the slave owners were quote devout. Presbyterians, devout Catholics, etc. Um, but yet, uh, tell their fellow man in bondage uh, really never ceases to amaze me. I think our listeners should also be aware. You heard mention of the Vigilance Committee. Uh-huh. Uh, which was a very strong force on the Underground Railroad. Uh, you notice they provided money, clothes, housing, food, friends. Mm-hmm. And as uh, Leslie indicated earlier, uh, they had mm-hmm. international friends. They had friends all over the world. Mm-hmm. That's Donating. so true. So mm-hmm. I was kind of I was struck by that. And also the ages. Uh, excuse me, uh, these young men, all the way from about 19 to 22 years of age, you know, coming into manhood, coming into their own, uh, uh, seeking freedom. Uh, Mr. Christian was motivated by love, <laughs> you know, uh, wanted to hook up with this young lady, but could not because he was a slave, and which... Uh, stoked his motivation 
Mm-hmm. Um, I I I wanted to mention something. You know, want you to expand on, you know, your comment about these people being devout, um, the uh, uh, Catholics and so forth. What role do you think that has has played in in slavery? That's, you know, being that you talked about different religions across the board, not just one, but you mentioned a few of them. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, well, in the clip, the Catholic Church, or the fact that a couple of owners belonged to a church, one of which was Catholic Mm -hmm. and one Presbyterian. Um, Mm -hmm. We know the Quakers uh, have a reputation as uh, not participating uh, officially in slavery, However, it's documented that some of the members of the Quaker Church, uh, once they left Pennsylvania and went south, became slave owners. Um, You know, I think the churches, um, you know, and this is across all faiths, uh, acquiesce, maybe not officially, but certainly unofficially, uh, to the uh, holding of African Americans or Africans in slavery. It should be noted that I believe it was the uh, wasn't it the Southern Baptists issued an apology mm-hmm. a few years back. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there... what I'm trying to understand is, you know, we have a lot of hate throughout the world, and uh, many of it comes from religious organizations. Um. I don't know, are we denouncing the people, the religion, or the religious institutions? You know, I hear it all the time, you know, well, I don't know if people are making comments that the church was involved in slavery as, you know, I don't get the point. You know, what do you want Christians or Catholics who are against slavery or Muslims, or anybody of a faith who are against slavery, what do you want them to do? Or how do you want them to feel? Well, certainly um, we would want them to actively um, be involved in the abolitionist movement. Mm-hmm. Now, there were, I think the churches were split very mm-hmm. much like, uh, families were split during the Civil War. You know, some families fought for the Union and some fought for the mm-hmm. Confederacy. And I think some of the Baptists, or I, I didn't mean, well, the conventions of the various religions, whether they were Methodist, Baptist, Catholic, or what have you, mm-hmm. they all had different governing bodies. Uh, for example, the Southern Baptists, which I mentioned, issued an apology for their part. And I don't know if it was so much their part are they were apologizing for the absence, their absence in being actively involved in the abolitionist movement. Mm-hmm. Well, is that to discredit the people who were part of these organizations that did abolish slavery and that did do the right thing? So if we say, you know, Lucretia Mott was a Quaker and she uh, fought to end slavery, and she did a lot of great things. But she was a Quaker, and the Quakers 
own some slaves. So is that supposed well, to take away from Lucretia or anyone who is oh no, a that's, part of a... No, I don't think that would impact taking credit away from Lucretia and other uh, Quakers or any other people of faith that were uh, uh, anti-slavery. But it seems that, you know, that is a lot of the response that we get when we say something positive or we are celebrating or talking about a victory in any area when it comes to our struggle, that someone comes back and says, oh, well, you did get that far, but these people did that, or this was, you know, something extremely negative, so that we're not allowed to say, well, this is, you know, this is what I'm talking about today. Of course, well, not everyone in every institution or religion is going to follow the religion the way it should be followed. But, you know, I think we we give too much um, attention to the naysayers, and that's what, you know, prime media, mainstream media does to our history period. Um, exactly. They keep us in this down, um, downtrodden mode. And I think this show is trying to say we are going to acknowledge the people who did the right thing just in spite of what religion or in spite of what their church did. We're going to focus on the righteous under any faith. And I really don't care um, in this juncture, from this aspect, what the overall uh, church did they belong to, but what I really want to talk about is what they did and and how successful they were, so that we can follow their footsteps. And and because we're going to hear these stories, our grandchildren are going to hear these stories from a very negative point of view. And it's up to us to try to balance that as much as we can, and not tell the same story that they will tell us and tell our children, but to spend this time tell the story the way we should tell the story. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, and teaching our children the ability to, to uh, discern mm-hmm. uh, between these stories and kind of think for mm-hmm. themselves mm-hmm. about who did what and who didn't do what, and as you mentioned, um, uh, giving credit where credit is due um, right. in terms of those people who were in support of... Because uh, mm-hmm. we don't hear about them. We rarely hear about them. We only hear about the negativity 24-7. When it comes to our history, our story, current events, we very rarely get to hear about um, black people um, helping one another out, working with people from different races, we don't hear those stories. So I, I really want to spend time talking about um, those things that we don't hear about and um, try to balance it out uh, in the classroom and other places. But I have one last clip from William Steele's book, and it's about 10 minutes long, and it's about a young woman um, who escaped from slavery. Um, she was dressed like a male. There's two stories in his book about uh, women uh, finding themselves in disguise, and it worked uh, 
you know, they were able to get free. So um, mm-hmm. do you have anything to say about um, different forms of escapes and how many black people, especially through Underground Railroad, was very, very clever? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, we talked about the gentleman uh, before on the show. Was his name Ben Box who mailed himself? Yes, two of them, William Henry Box and Mr. Peel, they both shipped themselves to freedom. Yeah, shipped themselves to freedom. Um, mm-hmm. The blacks who hid out on uh, freighters going up and down the Mississippi River, um, right there at the Civil War, there was a gentleman who stole a Confederate boat and mm-hmm. took it into Union lines and was able to do that uh, because he was challenged. He was a Confederate boat with an African crew going into uh, uh, Union lines. And because he knew the signals and could communicate with the flags and lights and whatnot, uh, was able to steer that ship into uh, into the uh, uh, Union Army. Uh, All right. Well, here's our last, our last clip. Section 11 of the Underground Railroad, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. The Underground Railroad, Part 1, by William Still. Section 11. Clarissa Davis. Arrived dressed in male attire. Clarissa fled from Portsmouth, Virginia, in May 1854, with two of her brothers. Two months and a half before she succeeded in getting off, Clarissa had made a desperate effort, but failed. The brothers succeeded, but she was left. She had not given up all hope of escape, however, and therefore sought a safe hiding place until an opportunity might offer, by which she could follow her brothers on the UGRR. Clarissa was owned by Mrs. Brown and Mrs. Berkeley of Portsmouth, under whom she had always served. Of them she spoke favourably, saying that she had not been used as hard as many others were. At this period, Clarissa was about twenty-two years of age, of a bright brown complexion, with handsome features, exceedingly respectful and modest, and possessed all the characteristics of a well-bred young lady. For one so little acquainted with books as she was, the correctness of her speech was perfectly astonishing. For Clarissa and her two brothers, a reward of $1,000 was kept standing in the papers for a length of time, as these articles were considered very rare and valuable, the best that could be produced in Virginia. In the meantime, the brothers had passed safely on to New Bedford, but Clarissa remained secluded, waiting for the storm to subside. Keeping up courage day by day for 75 days with the fear of being detected and severely punished and then sold after all her hopes and struggles required the faith of a martyr. Time after time, when she hoped to succeed in making her escape, ill luck seemed to disappoint her and nothing but intense suffering appeared to be in store. Like many others, under the crushing weight of oppression, she thought she should have to die ere she tasted liberty. In this state of mind, one day, word was conveyed to her that the steamship, City of Richmond, had arrived from Philadelphia, 
and that the steward on board with whom she was acquainted had consented to secrete her this trip if she could manage to reach the ship safely which was to start the next day this news to clarissa was both cheering and painful she had been praying all the time while waiting but now she felt that if it would only rain right hard the next morning about three o'clock to drive the police officers off the street then she could safely make her way to the boat therefore she prayed anxiously all that day that it would rain but no sign of rain appeared till towards midnight the prospect looked horribly discouraging but she prayed on and at the appointed hour three o'clock before day the rain descended in torrents dressed in male attire clarissa left the miserable coop where she had been almost without light or air for two and a half months and unmolested reached the boat safely and was secreted in a box by william bagnall a clever young man who sincerely sympathized with the slave having a wife in slavery himself and by him she was safely delivered into the hands of the vigilance committee clarissa davis here by advice of the committee dropped her old name and was straightway christened mary d armstead desiring to join her brothers and sister in new bedford she was duly furnished with her ugrr passport and directed thitherward her father who was left behind when she got off soon after made his way on north and joined his children he was too old and infirm probably to be worth anything and had been allowed to go free or to purchase himself for a mere nominal sum slaveholders would on some such occasions show wonderful liberality in letting their old slaves go free when they could work no more after reaching new bedford clarissa manifested her gratitude in writing to her friends in philadelphia repeatedly and evinced a very lively interest in the ugrr the appended letter indicates her sincere feelings of gratitude and deep interest in the cause new bedford august twenty sixth eighteen fifty five mr still i avail myself to write you these few lines hoping they may find you and your family well as they leaves me very well and all the family well except my father he seems to be improving with his shoulder he has been able to work a little i received the papers i was highly delighted to receive them i was very glad to hear from you in the wheeler case i was very glad to hear that the persons were safe i was very sorry to hear that mr williamson was put in prison but i know if the praying part of the people will pray for him and if he will put his trust in the lord he will bring him out more than conquer please remember my dear old father and sisters and brothers to your family kiss the children for me i hear the yellow fever is very bad down south now if the underground railroad could have free course the emigrant would cross the river of gordon rapidly i hope it may continue to run and i hope the wheels of the car may be greased with more substantial grease so they may run over swiftly i would have wrote before but circumstances would not permit me miss sanders and all the friends desire to be remembered to you and your family i shall be pleased to hear from the underground railroad often yours respectfully mary d armstead end of section eleven okay all right, are you still here, Preston? I'm still here. Okay. You mentioned uh, earlier uh, that those listeners who were interested in doing their genealogy, that William mm -hmm. Steele's uh, 
should be uh, their first acquisition. I just wanted to point out in that book, you notice that Clarissa had a name change. Yeah, I wrote that down. I sure did. I took notes and I heard that. Go ahead. And uh, that was pretty prevalent uh, back in the day, even, you know, during that time, which is why we could call abolitionist time or underground railroad time. But even after emancipation, um, mm-hmm. There was a lot of name changing. Uh, we often think that the liberated people took the names of their master. Mm-hmm. Well, that was not always true. Uh, sometimes they adopted the first name of the progenitor of their clan as their surname because they wanted no association. Uh, the badge of slavery, if you will. And of course, the name was the badge. Uh, that the family would carry for the rest of the generation. So I just wanted to point that out uh, mm-hmm. about that name change mm-hmm. and that valuable information that's in Mr. Steele's book. Right, and they said they Christian her this new name, which I yeah. had never heard that expression. Um, I had not. Yeah, so that was uh, that was truly enlightening. Um, as we know, Peter Gist definitely dropped the Gist name. Um, exactly. And changed it to still. But um, when it came to the records, uh, as far as William Still's records, they kept the records of uh, their uh, slave name so that when someone in the family escaped, they would be able to find one another. Okay. So although they dropped the names publicly, but when it came to records, Mr. Still kept both names to ensure that the family would be reunited. So when we talk, so when we talk about changing names and distancing ourselves from slavery, we also have to understand that that name is associated with our history and the way that we can reconnect when we were separated. So. That slave name was important, not because it was connected to the slave master, but it was the only way that we were tied to one another once we were separated. So, um, you know, we we have to um, acknowledge that people like Steele um, had both names, Um, and that's important to talk about. Any other notes that you take? Well, here uh, uh, notice that um, what I talked about earlier, well, she was dressed like a man mm-hmm. and that she um, got aboard a steamer. Uh, mm-hmm. She happened to know somebody that allowed her to come in to, uh, onto the ship, and they put her in a box. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Put an, another box. The box was very popular, huh? Yeah, boxes were very popular to, to get yeah. away in. So I and, the other, and she yeah, had to survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, really impressive. For 75 days, you know, she got Ooh. separated from her brothers and um, had to fend for herself for 75 days. That took a lot of wit. That took a lot of grit. That took a lot of health. Mm-hmm. You know, 75 yeah, she days. Was tough. 
tough cookie. She, you had to be tough to survive. And so when I hear people making fun, talking about you look like a runaway slave, I'm like, you know, the runaway slaves were the most courageous people on the plantation. If you're going to make fun of somebody, you make fun of the ones who remain enslaved and refuse to go. You know, yeah. the runner, you know, I think it, 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 I really don't like it when I hear it's going to look like a runaway slave. Are you crazy? You know, Those were the most. Hmm? That's a very good point, Leslie. Uh, it, in, in terms of changing the script and changing the language, and really mm-hmm. uh, I think the work that you're doing is really bringing it out how brave this runaway slave was, no matter what they looked like or how tattered their clothes were. Uh, they're right. extremely great people, and uh, they just, you know, refuse to lay back on the plantation and, and scratch their head and take the master's dole out and yazzle mm-hmm. or whatever. Right, because so, yeah. they were being told if you ran to the north that you were going to be eaten. So the slave masters were giving them all kinds of lies to keep them uh, on that plantation, but the one who had the courage and the faith to escape, you know, we need to tell their stories and stop uh, laughing at them and, you know, using them as an icon for something to be ashamed of, you know. Exactly. So, um, and also, they had the mm-hmm. smarts for it as well, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, they were not, uh, they might have been illiterate, but they had the smarts mm-hmm. for getting off that plantation and finding their way to places like Philadelphia, finding their way to individuals like Mr. William Steele, the Vigilance Committee, able to survive on their own for 75 days. Um, you know, they weren't any dummies. I mean, these people No, were, she said, she mentioned that um, she hopes that the, the railroad will continue to run. Exactly. Um, you know, so not only did they use the railroad to escape, but they also made sure that it stayed well oiled exactly. uh, once they, they were free. You know, yeah, you know, we give, we give Harriet a lot of credit for going back several times. Most of them went back in more ways than one. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so it was very common that once a free person um, a former enslaved person became free that they were involved in the Underground Railroad um, extensively, giving money, uh, protesting either by uh, not buying slave-made goods. I mean, they and made for- serious contributions once they were free and, and took great risk. Say it again. And some of them were, uh, some of them participated in armed rescues. Right, most of them were right out of the hands of the the courts and whatnot, and and sending them off to uh, Canada. Right, we uh, we read that in earlier shows with the black abolitionist folks that most of those people who were involved in those rescue missions after the fugitive slave law were the um, former um, enslaved people that escaped. They were extremely courageous people, and they they understood. The concept that I am my brother's keeper, and that um, you had to live to help one another out. And the last thing I wrote down was um, she said something to the point that 
one of the slave masters, once the slave was no longer to work, was unable to work, that he would free them. Did you catch that? The woman yeah. had a serious accent. Actually, actually, he well, what I thought I heard was um, he was allowed to buy his freedom for a nominal fee. Yeah. Is that is that the same one? Yeah, and he was too feeble. Mm-hmm. He got that was her father, wasn't it? I think so. I'm going to have to read because I really couldn't make uh, out was, what she was saying. That was her father. Uh, he had gotten old. He was too feeble to work, and he was allowed to buy his freedom. Although his daughter had escaped, he was allowed to buy his freedom for a nominal fee. And apparently her father joined her in Canada. Uh-huh. Uh, wow. I oh. got that, uh-huh. that letter, the, the letter that she had written to uh, William Steele. Okay, well, that's the end of our show. We have, we're down to the last minute, and I want to just tell everybody thank you for listening and um, all the nice comments that you post on Facebook in support of what we're doing. And you can always look uh, listen to all our shows on archive under www.blackhistoryuniversity.com, and that's our iTunes page. And also you can find us at www.blackhistoryblog.com. Preston, anything you want to say the last 30 seconds? No, I'm good. I just appreciate uh, your efforts in getting this information, um, you know, uh, information that probably otherwise would not be put out in the media, and uh, just really Mm -hmm. applaud and appreciate your efforts. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. Have a good night, and um, we'll see you Thursday. We do have a guest, and I'll be talking to you soon. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.